And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. That's right, Greta. It is Friday, and this is Climate Change Roundtable, our personal protest against climate insanity. This is episode 88. The title? National Climate Assessment, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm your host, Anthony Watt, Senior Fellow at the Heartland Institute. We have a regular panelist with us today, Dr. H. Sterling Burnett, who is uh, with the Heartland Institute. And we're also going to have James Taylor, President of the Heartland Institute. Linnea is off today for some much-needed R&R. So we're going to get into this big report issued by the Biden administration, NCA5 or the National Climate Assessment Number 5. The media went nutso over this report. CNN, for example, claiming, no place in the U.S. is safe from the climate crisis, but a new report shows us where it's most severe. Similar claims were echoed by other media outlets, and but when you, know, you look at the data, the actual objective data, there's no crisis, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, James and Sterling, thank you for being with us today. Um, any initial thoughts on this before we get into crazy climate news? That's Blondie to you. <laughs> One, two, three. Three, the perfect number. There you go. Uh, yeah. I wish I had my Lee Van Cleef outfit, though. I liked him from the other movie better. Well, just an initial point. There are 32 chapters and 10 appendices in the National Climate Assessment. If we're going to defeat it, we're going to have to earn it. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But first, we're going to talk about some of the crazy climate news this week. The first one up, heat has projected to kill nearly five, more, five times more people by 2050. Yes, it's another climate model. And that climate model says people are going to die. Well, you know, we've been hearing this for how many years? 30 years, 40 years now. People are going to die. Climate change will kill people. And, you know, they, they talk about this on a regular basis. They push this, this narrative that climate change is deadly. And yet, when you look at the numbers, it's not there. For example, we have at our Climate at a Glance website a complete rebuttal on this about temperature-related deaths. And if you look at the data we find that cold kills far more people than heat. And so with it getting warmer in the future, based on their projections, that it should mean pe less people should be actually dying. But they're looking at it completely opposite. There's a little graph down here, a little further down the screen. Let's bring that up. There it is. Higher temps avoid 283,000 cold deaths. And this is according to a study in the Lancet. Uh, prestigious medical journal. Higher temps cause less than half of that. So what's the problem? It's it look study after study. All of you know a, a lot of them published in the Lancet. Huge studies, you know, spanning dozens of countries, dozens of researchers looked at the cold, looked at the non-optimal temperature deaths, and have found consistently cold kills ten to seventeen times more people than heat. Cold deaths are going down. Climate uh, hot deaths are possibly a little bit trending up, but it's been within the margin of error. But that overall, as temperatures uh, have warmed modestly, the number of deaths related to non-optimum temperatures have fallen dramatically and continue to fall every year. Every year that we get higher temperatures, the number of deaths attributable to temperatures are uh down 
So it, it is, it's hard to make the claim, except if you use these, these computer models, which they don't get the fundamental thing that they're intended, you know, they're created to say temperatures. They're created to say the Earth's temperature, average temperature response to what? CO2. It doesn't even get that right. If they don't get the fundamental thing that they predict right, why should any other model based on those claims be taken seriously? The answer is they shouldn't. Those are good points, Sterling. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who follow the science and those who write the national climate assessment. We'll follow the science. You can have the rope. Yep. Yep. Anyway, so it it just, you know, more big ado about nothing. All right. The next one up is, uh, while the media obsess about warmth, the globe is seeing plenty of unusual cold events. Now, that's something that the media loses sight of on a regular basis. They very rarely report on cold weather events like they do with warm weather events or hot weather events or record-breaking events or whatever. You know, cold is just something that's just part of weather. But when it's heat, it's all about climate. It's just, it's predictable. It's as predictable as the sun rises every morning. And, you know, we've got lots of really heavy-duty cold events going on throughout the globe right now. And yet everyone's obsessing over potential future heat. Ask the people in Mongolia, the herders in Mongolia who died recently because of snow. Uh, the people in north northern China, the the accidents, the road closures that happen in snow every year. Uh, ask them uh, what worries them the most: heat or freezing temperatures, killing their lives. You know, thousands of livestock dying, hundreds of people dying. Yep. Well, it's very interesting because in the National Climate Assessment, they claim that this climate change, this warming of the globe is making the entire country vulnerable. And it's making more regions of the country vulnerable than others. So for example, Catherine Hayhoe, prominent climate alarmist, self-identified scientist, claims that California, Louisiana, Texas are particularly vulnerable. And yet that's where people are moving to, those exact yeah, you states. Know, Catherine Hayhoe thinks God is on her side because he hates climate skeptics. <laughs> God is not on her side because God hates idiots also. God hates no one. He wants them to correct themselves. <laughs> and how you correct yourself is to follow the truth. And, and so she needs a lot of correction. You know, that's the ultimate insult we should use. Go correct yourself. <laughs> All right, next crazy climate thing. Green bloodbath, major industries closing down as German energy prices soar. Hey, you know why? We have it in our opening uh, that Sterling talked about. You know, Germany, three days without wind or solar power. <laughs> they, they went total green, and now they're going bust because they can't afford the energy that they can make. It's yep, they're going to they're going to bail out Simmons to the tune of uh, eight and a half billion dollars. Of course, how long will that last? Simmons lost billions of dollars just last year on wind. So how long they stay afloat? I don't know with this with this uh, infusion. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> Germany's plowing under villages to start mining coal to uh, to provide coal to their mines. Winter's coming back. Uh, it's uh, it's stupidity uh, piled upon stupidity. Anthony, I'm glad that you opened up here with a talk about idiotic renewable energy policy, because if you look at the National Climate Assessment, keep in mind, this is mandated by Congress. I wish that the next Congress will rescind this and take away the funny and get rid of the stupidity. But regardless, if you look at the document, and I encourage you to do so, the focus from the very beginning is not on climate science. It is on leftist energy and cultural policies. That is what the National Climate Assessment begins with. You have to go down many, many pages before you get any discussion of science. Of course, that may be a good thing considering what they consider science, but either way, it makes me need a slug of whiskey. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right, so now we have 
this is one of James's favorite because he talks about this every year because it seems like the media will report on one study one year, another study another year, and they're always flip-flopping. One year, the Gulf Stream is speeding up. Another year, the Gulf Stream is slowing down. In either case, disaster is imminent. Now we have the Royal Society saying the Gulf Stream collapse is bunk. Not going to happen. Well, you know, that's pretty definitive. Hopefully, it'll put an end to this back and forth. James, what do you think? Well, that's a valid point, Anthony. If you look at some of the media stories and in my PowerPoint presentations, I often put in slides where you see time and again, you'll see, for example, the media will trumpet this narrative that because of climate change, the ocean currents are speeding up. It's caused by climate change. The models always predicted it. How could we not have seen this coming? Then two months later, another study will come out and the media will trumpet a narrative. Because of climate change, the ocean currents are slowing down and the climate models always predicted it and it will be the end of the world. How could we not see this coming? And they flip flop back and forth. They do it on ocean currents. They do it on pretty much everything else. Yesterday, I was doing an interview with France TV. Thus, I had to shave my facial hair, which of course is what I normally wear. But regardless, in the interview, she pointed out that there is a claim that there is going to be a death spiral of snow in the Alps. And yet, just that day, there was a news article, study come out, Org had the article saying that climate models predict more snow in the French Alps. So now we're going to hear the same thing. More snow in the Alps, climate change causes it. We predicted it all along. Forget what you heard before. Don't listen to what Tuco says. Right. Yeah, you know, it's just it's the same thing over and over again. It's the same kind of alarmism where, you know, a study comes out. The study says something. It's a prediction. It's a guess, an educated guess, a climate model. Doom is on the horizon. And then it comes out again later, you know, a year later. It's a completely different conclusion, flip-flopped. And it's still doom on the horizon because the media forgets about it and most of the readers forget about it. But we do not. We keep track of this stuff. And that's what let we do on you, climate realism every day. Let me give you another example. Now, typically I'm in New Mexico. Right now I'm in Chicago in November. It's freaking cold, but I'm still out here for you, for our climate change roundtable audience. But nevertheless, back about five years ago, the media was full of scare stories about how because of climate change, the Great Lakes are at their lowest levels ever recorded. And mm. our computer models always predicted this. We're going to have a water shortage throughout the Midwest. And it's your fault, climate deniers. And then what happened? According to the federal government's own measurements, the Great Lakes are now at their highest levels ever recorded. And so now the media comes out with stories. Our climate models always predicted this. We're going to have flooding around the Great Lakes. And you climate deniers should have seen this coming. Yeah, we actually have a climate at a glance entry on the Great Lakes water levels, and we get data uh, from the Army Corps of Engineers, and there's no trend. It's just not happening. You know, when you look at the objective data, there it is. Look at Lake Superior and Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, the graphs down below there. Where's the trend? It's not happening. You know, it's just scare stories. That, well, that's the problem with all this uh, climate alarm so-called science is that it's not science it's it's a religion and how do you know it's not science it's not testable if the great lakes are rising it's climate change if the great lakes are falling it's climate change if you're getting more snow in india it's climate change if you're having drought and less snow in india it's climate change monsoon strengthening monsoon uh less strengthening Hot, faster uh atlantic current slower atlantic current it doesn't matter diametrically opposed projections or claims and they're all climate change um what's what's interesting in that chart and andy you're doing a great job putting graphics up without any advance notice i appreciate that but look at that chart if you look back currently is the far right five to ten years ago of the five great lakes two of them just two of them had low water levels only one of them had really exceptionally low water and yet, based on that five years of data, we were told this is climate change. It's irreversible. It's our fault. There was never a trend in the first place. Right, right. I want to do a shout out real quick to someone who gave us a super chat. Doug Bruillette 
gave us $50 because we're not getting any money from big oil. We never do. Even though clean, there are rampant claims that we're funded by big oil, zero. We never get a dime. Anyway, thank you, thank Doug. You, Doug. I wish I could say that would cover my cigars and whiskey, but that's on the house. <laughs> you know. All righty. By the way, if you have a particular question that you want to ask and you want to guarantee that we talk about it, do a super chat, make a small donation. I mean, anything really, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're not hugely funded like some other organizations. So uh, let's go to our final crazy climate news of the week. Wait, before we, we do. Oh, well, I, this I, isn't the final one. This is the next to final. What was that drilling? Before we do, I want to address some comments going on in the, uh, in the comment section with, from right. a guy named Luke Starkenberg. Uh, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. So he's put up a couple of comments and he thinks he's tripping us up or that somehow he's refuting us. First off, the headlines from the news stories were all about deaths from heat. They said heat will kill, not other things, heat. Secondly, the data is clear on heat, heat related deaths. So, um, you know, your your heart disease, your other things that might be triggered or weather events triggered by heat. The data is clear on all three. They're going down, dramatically going down. So uh, whether it's directly from heat or related to heat, it's declining, not increasing, even as the planet warms. Because he talks about the doomsday glacier on West Antarctica. He doesn't talk about Antarctica, which is growing uh, it, which is adding ice and snow. But then a recent study just came out that showed the last 20 years, West Antarctica has temperatures have declined 1.8 degrees per decade. That's what they found. You're right. Uh, the doomsday glacier is, uh, is declining. Um, and it's largely due to ocean currents and subsurface volcanic activity. Nothing. We, we don't control that with our cars or our power plants. Um, I'd love us to be able to control volcanoes. We don't. So uh, trying to blame everything on climate change when other things are going on and when data is contradictory, it doesn't help your case, Luke. I, I will say, as a contrarian to Sterling, and I appreciate those insights, I really appreciate Luke's questions because it allows us to debunk some of the common myths that otherwise would not have been presented. So, for example, with the heat deaths versus cold deaths, the Lancet study finding 20 times more people globally die due to cold than heat. That's millions of people every year. They look at direct and indirect uh, causes of deaths, whether it's a heat stroke or cold exposure. But also, for example, when you look at for cold, when you're out in the cold, your arteries constrict. I can attest to that right now. If you engage in active uh, active behavior and you're pumping blood, you're more likely to suffer a heart attack. That's due to cold. That's a peer-reviewed study from the Lancet, the most prestigious medical journal in the world. And that's, again, quite verified. Also, Luke says, can you do a segment debunking the doomsday glacier and ocean level rise? I appreciate that. The so-called doomsday glacier, it's what the media always does. It's what climate activists do. They put on these scary terms. The fact of the matter is, any ice shelf that's sitting on water is not going to make much of a difference. Also, as Sterling said, when we're getting some in the West, uh, West Antarctica, some decline in ice, it's due to underground volcanoes and ocean currents. But we know, and the alarmist climate models even predict, that with warming temperatures, we're going to get more snow and ice accumulating on the Antarctic continent. I would say to Luke, in the spirit of this particular episode, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> Outstanding. Somebody has to play the role of Tuco. Thank there you. There you go. Yeah. Not no, I think movie, that was from a different. I think that was from a different series of Eastwood movies. I know. Though. I know. Dirty it Harry. Seemed yeah. relevant. It seemed relevant. All right. Life so is we'll just one long timeline. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got this one: weeping and gnashing of teeth from our paper, saying climate change is not a big deal. Now, this is what we talk about regularly here at the Heartland Institute. Yes, climate change is happening. Yes, climate change is real. Man-made climate change, eh, not so much. But it's not a crisis. It's not something that's going to kill people. It's not doomsday. It's manageable. 
that's really all we're saying on a regular basis. And so someone puts out a paper, and guess what? They get trashed for not saying it's doomsday. Go figure. But that's the way science has been co-opted these days. There is science has become so politicized that if you don't have the appropriate keywords in your paper, you know, doom is on the horizon. Models say, you know, uh, uh, worst ever, unprecedented. Those are the kind of keywords that get these papers published these days. But when you go and look at the objective data, where's the crisis? Well, here is what the objective data tell us. And that is that as we have more carbon dioxide in the air, as we have modestly warming temperatures, there has been a greening of the earth that's been measured by satellites. We see that the earth's ecosystems are improving throughout the world. We also see that there has record crop production, crop yields virtually every year. It's funny in the national climate assessment, they talk about crop damage and declining crop yields. It has no basis in reality. We know from the objective data, crop yields are increasing all the time. And of course, we know that cold versus heat, cold causes far, far more deaths than heat. These are all benefits of a modestly warming climate. At the same time, when you look at droughts, hurricanes, wildfires, again, in the National Climate Assessment, where we have the government's own bureaucrats looking to increase their funding, their budgets, their visibility, their media attention, and their ability to travel to posh resorts to discuss the topic. All of those topics, we know from objective data, there is no increase in the frequency and severity of those events. In fact, we know objectively, and go to climateataglance.com to see the actual truth, because we document that for each of these so-called increases in extreme weather events, there's actually no increase, and for most of them, a decline. You know, somebody uh, wrote, let's see here, it's, uh, I want to get it right here. Uh, Sam Ott wrote, unprecedented number of news stories get climate change wrong. Probably no, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I would wager that no, um, no news story gets wrong more often than reports on climate change. Um, a, it's repeatedly, uh, it, it's in the press almost daily somewhere, usually repeatedly in the same, you know, the New York Times probably runs three or four stories a week on climate change. Um, the Washington Post has a whole climate editor uh, and they are consistently wrong. And they're wrong. And, you know, James touts our climate at a glance where That's we provide uh, climate at a glance on um, getting the facts straight on the different weather events. But every day on climate realism, we respond to news stories that get it wrong. Now, the news stories get it wrong, usually based on a particular study that they cite. But it shows the lack of integrity in the press because used to you had investigative journalists and someone says something, oh, it's a new scientific study. They look into it and they'd say, well, you know, does that comport with the evidence? And the data is out there. They could find the data if they looked for it. It's not hard. I, I mean, sometimes it's hard, but usually it's not. And we provide a lot of it and we reference it and it refutes, it debunks these stories. And yet every day, it's not a drip, drip, drip. It's it's uh, waves crashing every day of bad reporting on climate change. As I was telling France TV yesterday, all of this data that you can find in climateataglance.com, it's available to everybody. You don't have to go through these extreme rabbit holes to find them. Now, we pull it together for you so it's even easier if you go to climateataglance.com to find it. But this is information that is available to the Catherine Hayhoes and the Michael Manns of the world. The problem is, it's one of two things. Either they're in their own echo chamber and they just simply are unaware that it exists, which might seem incredible, but this is the way climate activists operate. They don't even investigate their own claims or they're aware of it and they just hope that people won't find the truth, but we'll present the truth for you. Right, and so finally in our crazy climate news of the week, we have, Governor Newsom of California says the homeless camp pallet fire was caused by climate change. <laughs> you know, it's 
here's the problem. It's gotten so crazy out there. It's hard to tell what's parody and what's real anymore. I mean, this is actually something we might expect to see Newsom saying. Because, you know, it seems like any event that happens in the world, no matter what it is related to weather or a fire or a flood or snow or no snow or drought or no drought or whatever it is, immediately the go-to boogeyman is climate change. And so this is not out of line for something Newsom that might actually say. Well, I know what caused the homeless camp cleanup in San Francisco, and that's that's Newsom kowtowing to his good buddy, uh, the Chinese uh, Commissar Z, just like uh, Seattle cleaned up around the stadium before the All-Star game. They don't care about their people. They don't care about what people have to go through in those cities. Uh, but they care about the glitz and they care about uh, what the Chinese think, evidently. Um, it's that's disgrace. You know, News look, Newsom's disgraceful. Everyone says, oh, well, he'll run for president. I, I hope he does. If I was any candidate, any candidate running against Newsom, I'd say, do you want what happened in California for the United States? Then vote for Newsom. <laughs> do, do you want. Uh, people crapping on your street openly and not being arrested for exposing themselves, vote for Newsom. Do you want jobs fleeing? Uh, then vote for Newsom because that's what he's brought to California. Well, let's get this straight. Climate change did not cause wooden pallets at a homeless camp to spontaneously combust. No. Now, what caused that fire is policies that facilitate and encourage homelessness and people will light pallets of wood so they can have their own fires to warm themselves from the cold temperatures. Climate change is the excuse that woke politicians use to give an excuse for their own failed policies. Yep, exactly right, James. Speaking of policy, we're going to get into our main discussion now. The National Climate Assessment Number 5, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're going to talk about all of that now. So... James? The National Climate Assessment is anything but. Let's keep in mind, and I was asked about this yesterday, you have these scientists that say we're facing a crisis. The so-called scientists, these are government bureaucrats. Their jobs depend upon the perpetuation of a climate crisis. The budgets for EPA, for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for NASA, they have increased dramatically for, with funding to address climate change. The moment any one of them says we don't face a crisis, their budgets, their jobs, their media attention, their trips to Dubai and Rio de Janeiro all disappear. You have to look at the science. And that is what we at the Heartland Institute have always encouraged people to do. Let's look at the science and the facts, not emotions and not government bureaucrats. Data trumps the statements of government bureaucrats and those who are funded by climate change expenditures in the federal budget. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's all about continuation. It's uh, more funding. If we don't say the climate crisis is impending, we're not going to get funding next year. If we solve the climate crisis or say, hey, there's no climate crisis, there's no funding to solve the climate climate crisis. It, it, is, a, it is a circular logic argument of funding. Well, it, it, I've tested this. I, I've been on stage with scientists and I've said, okay, look, if you say the science is settled, how would you feel about us removing all science funding for climate research next year? Because the science is settled. And we focus it only on adaptation. We focus it only on solving the problems you say will be caused by climate change because that science is settled. None of them says we can forego further funding for climate science research. What's the research if it's settled? I, I don't know. Um, it, it, you know, now this is this is titled the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I guess I want to talk first. I'm wondering if there's any good in the report. So I think that's going to be a short discussion, but I could be wrong. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll find something in it that I didn't see. And so we we're left with the bad and the ugly. And I want to talk about the ugly first. And the ugly to me is the, um, 
the corruption in the report. Lead uh, chapters were written by people who aren't, you know, aren't uh, academic. They are scientists that work for climate lobby organizations and the Nature Conservancy and people buying and sell, making money buying and selling carbon credits. That's where their money comes from. So if the climate change thing goes away, well, they're out of, you know, they're, they're looking for new work. So can you really trust chapters from them? Uh, this is rife throughout the report. This we're funded, uh, we're funded by tax dollars, tax dollars that flow to disaster claims that go away if disaster claims go away. And so we're going to write a report. And what's that report going to say? Well, disasters in the offing. Well, as the person exemplifying the good in the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay. I will point out that there is a very small section of the National Climate Assessment that does mention the good, kind of as a side note. They're hoping you won't see it. But there is an acknowledgment that in the United States, if we're going to talk about climate villains and carbon dioxide emission villains, here in the United States, we have dramatically reduced our carbon dioxide emissions this century. We have reduced emissions more than any other country in the world. And yet, where is all the focus here on the evil United States? Now, I can tell you that based upon all of the information and data that, that we produce and that we report on climateataglance.com, carbon dioxide emissions in a warming climate have been very beneficial to human health and welfare. But if we want to go down that road, let's look at some other countries. Let's look in the mirror. China is one of the biggest recipients of funding and praise from the climate establishment, and yet they emit twice as much, more than twice as much emissions as the United States. If we're looking to reduce emissions, go talk to China, go talk to India, go talk to Russia and other nations. The fact of the matter is the United States is the good already in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, I'm going to, okay, I, I hate to do this, James, but I'm going to disagree with you there. <laughs> the reason is uh, I'm with the carbon king. I uh, Be careful. I, I've got two right above my soul. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> and they're from the period, baby. And they're from the period. All right. Be careful. Because on social media, we could say gas the Jews, but we can't show six shooters. Ah, there you go. Well, um, We lost. We lost Sterling. I assume uh, he's going to go. he's point out. Back. There you go. Go ahead, Sterling. And the CO2 coalition both point out, and we pointed out, reducing CO2 isn't a good thing. CO2 That's what I said. Good. Yeah. That's no, but I you said. said, but you, but you called it the good in the report, and the report says that we're cutting CO2. So I don't see that as good. I but see the that as part of the bad. Report is the acknowledgement that if you're going to have these scapegoats for carbon dioxide emissions, again, go bark yeah. up China's tree, not our tree. Well, but yes, China is doing a good thing. Yeah. Adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere is a good thing. And using affordable energy raises the living standards of people around the world. And although I have my issues with the communist Chinese government, the fact of the matter is there are more than a billion people living in China, and it's good that they have... Uh, increasing living standards as a result of carbon dioxide emissions. So yes, we're in agreement, and you have avoided my six shooter. And I and and I'm going to agree with you on China too, because China's doing what Trump tried to do, what Trump, what what China has always done, putting China first. Yep, China's going to do what's do. good. China's going to do what's good for China, and Newsom is praising them for that, and yep. Biden is kowtowing to them for that. And uh, Kerry is going over there and saying what great people they are for that. And yet when we try and do that, we're the evil empire. Good point, yeah. Sterling. Here's another slug of whiskey to you. Yeah. <laughs> Sterling, since you got to show off your six guns, I figured I might as well show off mine, you know. There you go. Right. You know, it just, um, there's so much that people talk about with these things, you know, with weapons that are all bad or whatever, you know, but I would say that gun owners are some of the most responsible people out there. I mean, you know, the people that own guns illegally are not, obviously, but, you know, 
it's just part of the American culture. It goes all the way back to the Wild West and six guns and the good and the bad and the ugly that we're talking about today. So, you know, it's not a big deal. So uh, let's get on to um, uh, what the NCA says about the bad side of things. Now, here's their, ma their map, their graphic that says climate change risk in the U.S. And so look at the, <laughs> the maps. Wow. Look at the science there. The maps are just all red, the one on the upper left. Uh, except, you know, maybe there might be some warm nights, uh, except for maybe Montana, North and South Dakota. Um, you know, precipitation's going up, heavy precipitation's going up, sea level's rising. They make the sea level map is insane. You know, there is no cities going underwater due to sea level rise. They talk about Miami. They talk about Baltimore, you know, as being threatened by sea level. Newsom uh, and his predecessor, Brown, talked about the San Francisco airport going to be underwater. But the bottom line is, is that uh, all these things are due to subsidence. You know, the, the earth, the ground is shrinking. Part of it has to do with taking out groundwater. In Baltimore, it has to do with a meteor impact hundreds of thousands of years ago that has fractured the rock in the Baltimore area, and it's gradually compressing and causing Baltimore to sink. Not about sea level rise. It's just simply about other factors. That's a good point. And I'm amused that in the National Climate Assessment, they include just a, a small, not proportionate uh, view map of Alaska. I was in Alaska a couple months ago. I was out overlooking Prince William Sound. Alaska is in undergoing substantial fall in sea level. That's been going on for decades because of various factors, again, not related to climate change, what you see is that the sea level is falling in Alaska. But let's look at other places. If this really is such a crisis, an imminent crisis, why is Barack Obama refurbishing and moving into a mansion literally on the shore of Hawaii? Not on a cliff, but literally light on the water. If they really believed what they're peddling, they wouldn't be building mansions on the water in Hawaii. Right. Right. And, you know, they talk about the national climate assessment and it getting warmer, you know, and getting warmer is going to be bad. But here's the deal. If, in fact, carbon dioxide is the driver of all this, China and India are going way up in their emissions. Their emissions continue to increase while they give lip service to policy. And so no matter what the United States does, no matter what the, the, the European nations do, no matter what Australia does, we're still going to see an increase in carbon dioxide because China and India, they don't care. They just provide lip service. It's still going to go up. So what are we going to do here in the United States? Continue to beat ourselves up, reduce our energy independence, reduce our, our strategic reserves, all these things that they're doing, saying it's going to help climate change. The bottom line is it's not going to make one bit of difference. Well, Since we're being warned. Since the turn of the century, again, American emissions have declined significantly since 2005. Actually, since the turn of the century, we'll go back to that. Emissions here have fallen by 15 percent. Global emissions have increased by 60 percent. Those nations that are not the United States. That's not a bad thing. But if you want to send out a posse to go hunt people down, it's not here in the United States. You should be looking for your posse uh, victims there. You should be looking in China and India and Russia and other nations. Yep, let's, exactly. let's talk about let's talk about the lip service versus the reality. So two years ago, she said that they were, uh, you know, moving towards carbon, uh, carbon neutrality, that that they, they expected their uh, in 2016. They said that they expected to peak carbon emissions uh, by uh, 2030 to 2035. And uh, so two years ago, he, he said, uh, you know, we're, we're moving towards carbon neutrality. And what did they do that year? Well, they approved 127 coal-fired power plants. Since then, they've approved uh, 100, more, more, more than 100 more. In India, the, the, India is being pretty honest about it. They, they're, they're saying, look, that's crazy. We're not giving up uh, fossil fuels. We're not giving up uh, oil and gas. Even as they build solar, even as they build wind, even as they get a lot of battery scooters that are catching fire everywhere, um, they are not uh, eschewing uh, coal. India expects to increase its coal by 50% by uh, uh, 2030 to 2035. They've said that. That's what they're doing. So uh, they're the third largest emitter of carbon dioxide. 
just behind us. China is more than double us, more than all the industrialized countries combined. And yet somehow they are the heroes and they're cooperating with us on reducing carbon dioxide. Their cooperations consisted, you shut down everything while we continue to increase. That's their cooperation. If you believe the national climate assessment, people will be flocking to move to and retire in Maine, in Montana, in Wisconsin, in Minnesota. They're beautiful places. But the fact of the matter is people dream about and flock to, and you can see in the demographic numbers, the shifts, they're moving to Florida and Texas and Arizona. So don't give me this bunk about how it's becoming too hot to live. Yeah. And, and, and at the same time, even as we, you know, I, I think it's part of our reduction in CO2 emissions is coinciding with our, our reduction in the reliability of our electric power system across this country. We are getting consistent warnings across different uh, electric power managers across the country, um, regional uh, electric power managers, that we may have shortages this summer. I mean, this winter. We're going to have failing. Fail, failed uh, outages are becoming more and more common. And they say, oh, well, you can't blame that on wind and solar. Of course you can. If they don't work in, in, in summer, I mean, if they don't work in the cold, if they ice over, if, if the wind's not blowing, if the snow covers them, they're at fault. Coal plants don't shut down just because it's cold. Natural gas plants, unless you cut off the electricity to their supply line, don't shut down just because it's cold. And when we had more reliance on coal, we didn't have as many outages. You, you, you can say correlation is not causation. True. But it's an, in, it's an indicator of something going on. And as we add more and more wind and solar to the power grid, outages are becoming more and more common and prices are going up despite the claims that it's cheaper. Right. In California, they're getting ready to add another 11% price hike in the cost of electricity. PG&E got it through the Public Utilities Commission. Of course, not really. They didn't get it through. The Public Utility Commission is in PG&E's pocket because it was a unanimous vote to raise prices by 11% in California. I mean, the prices there are already off the scale. And it's one of the reasons why I no longer live in California, because the price of living there, just simply getting basic electricity was becoming untenable. And now they're jacking it up even more. I mean, it's just like they have no idea what people go through in living. And what's important to observe and understand is that throughout the country, you have climate activists and the utilities who are pushing to retire coal power plants in particular, also natural gas. And they go in front of the public utilities commissions in each state. And they have public hearings. And we at the Heartland Institute have attended, participated, testified in these hearings. And they say, oh, wind and solar power want to reduce electricity costs. And what I say every time, I say, all right, if that's the case, make a pledge right now. If you are actually going to see a reduction in, in electricity costs, as you promise, if there's an increase, then you should be the ones to cover the cost. And when I say, will you pledge right now, if you want the people in Iowa and in Indiana and in Colorado to approve this retirement of perfectly operational coal power plants for building new wind and solar, well, then you guarantee that you'll cover the costs and that you won't raise electricity prices. And when we present that argument and that challenge in these hearings, all we get are either silence or visceral pushback. If they believe what they're peddling, they would make that promise and that pledge. Well, if they believed, if, if, if they really believed it with a straight face, they wouldn't at the same time as they're, as they're saying, we want to shut down coal, add new wind and solar, and we need a rate hike, even though it's cheaper. They're right. saving so much money on that coal they're shutting down. They shouldn't need a rate hike. What we know is it's more expensive and it's more expensive. Why? They've paid off those coal plants. They're not making anything but on the sales of electricity there. No capital costs. Every new megawatt they build of wind and solar, it's cost plus 10% or more profit for them. So the higher, you know, the, the more expensive the industrial wind facility or solar facility, the more money they make. So the old Republican Party would say what's good for business is what's good for us and we should support it. But keep in mind, Business is looking out for themselves is what they should be doing. But when they try to scalawag you by shutting down 
perfectly operational, already bought and paid for and financed coal power plants that are delivering affordable energy and they want to shut them down for more wind and solar, it's because they know they're going to get their 10% guaranteed profit on the construction costs. Plus, they're going to get their guaranteed profit on the higher priced wind and solar power. So again, just because it's good for some corporate entity, that doesn't mean it's good for the people. Yeah. All righty. So one of the things in the National Climate Assessment Report number five is they're talking about temperature. Now, you know, they put up the usual graph, you know, United States and global changes and average surface temperature. Well, you know, of course, it went, uh, interestingly enough, even though the Industrial Revolution started in about 1850, and we were putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Guess what? Between 1895 and about uh, oh, 1925, temperature went down. And then it went up, peaking around 1940. And then it went down again. And now it's going up. And so what's really going on here? Is this really climate? Is this just the natural system doing its variation? Uh, but here's the thing. They always show these graphs in a highly magnified way. Uh, particularly when you're talking about the United States. But if you look at the actual data from the Climate Reference Network in the United States, and look at this, you, it, it's flat, at least since 2005. There's really no gigantic increase in temperature. Where's the crisis? There is none. And here's the other thing. If you look at the scale of temperature on the scale of human experience, like we experienced with a thermometer outdoors, you know, going from, you know, temperatures in the teens and, and single digits in the wintertime, all the way up to 100 plus in the summertime, it's different. Now, this is what the, the global temperature looks like according to NASA GIFs. But if you move down a little bit and look at it on the scale of temperature experienced by humans, scroll down a little bit there, Andy. There you go. It's flat. Where's the crisis? You can't see it. The only way that they would know that there's a climate change is through statistical analysis. People can't feel that little bit of temperature change over time. It's just not possible. Yeah, and it goes beyond that, Anthony. As you mentioned, the data that you showed from the, um, the Climate Reference Network, we know that since 2005, at the very least, there's been no warming here in the United States. So here we have a national climate assessment, emphasis on the word national, the point of this endeavor that Congress has funded and mandated is to show the impacts of climate change in the United States. And they talk about more wildfires and whatever else. The fact of the matter is if there's more wildfires, and by the way, there aren't, as we show in Climate at a Glance at climateataglance.com, but let's assume for the sake of argument, there was such a thing. If that's the case, and there isn't California, for example, that's because you have Gavin Newsom running the state and the state lands. Any asserted climate change harms, at least for the past 20 years, if not farther, have nothing to do with climate change because the climate is the same here going back at least 20 years for our national climate assessment. So look instead at our government bureaucrats who are screwing things up. You know, um, we, we had Roy Spencer on not that long ago, about two weeks, I think, discussing the heat. And we've had, you know, well, Anthony's our host and he's done some good work on uh, the urban heat island effect and and the temperature gauges and the bias that they have. It, it's interesting that if you look at it worldwide, if you look at it nationally, any indication that uh, it's getting hotter more rapidly is due to the urban heat island effect and the bias that introduces into the temperatures that they talk about that the problem that Anthony talks about is they don't talk about the, uh, the UHCN, which is the unbiased temperature system that they set up to check. Yeah. They said, they said, we want a system that's unbiased. That's not affected by urban heat island. And when they did, it doesn't show the warming that the other system use that, that shows that's biased by urban heat islands. And right. yet that's what they report, not the unbiased one. That and our show last week was all about UHI, and Dr. Roy Spencer produced this fantastic new data set that correlated temperature and population increases. And it's boom, it's right there. The correlation is fantastic. The bottom line is, is that we get more humans living in an area, temperature goes up. It's just that simple. Well, and, and it's a good point, because if you look at the National Climate Assessment, they make a big deal about three charts they produce. 
it's a temperature chart for three cities. I believe it's Miami, Atlanta, and Minneapolis. It might be Houston, Atlanta, Minneapolis, but whatever it is. And they talk about how heat disproportionately affects those who are disadvantaged. And they look at income and they say, look at this is where the heat is most dramatic. And that's where poor people tend to live. But although they meant it for evil, the Lord meant it for good. And thus the good, the bad, and the ugly. Look at this chart. This is the good. What this is a, an embodiment of is the urban heat island effect. Each of those city temperature charts, what you see is that the heat that they say is increasing dramatically is the inner city. And you look outside the inner city and you don't see that. This, although they don't see it, is again an illustration of how it's the urban heat island effect that has nothing to do with climate change. Exactly. And, and I would wager, if you looked at those three cities and their economic data, you'd find that wages are up, that uh, the uh, local uh, GDP is up, that uh, they are improving economically at, during this time period. And so uh, the poor are, are benefiting. And people are flocking to Atlanta. I was about to say, yeah, it's, they're growing cities. All right, so we have a lot of questions, probably the most questions we've ever had for a show. So we're going to get started on those now and see what we have. Andy, let's bring up our first question from our viewers. Alan Griffith asks, greetings from the Chile United Kingdom. Any news on Michael Fraudsterman versus Mark Stein? Yes, the news is no news. Um, the judge bowed out at the day that the trial was supposed to start a couple weeks ago and said, Hey, I'm, I'm sick. And then boom, the whole thing got rescheduled. No new date ahead. No one knows when it's going to happen. Um, you know, we don't know what happened there, except that 10 years on, there's yet another unreasonable delay. And poor Mark Stein, he flew all the way down from Canada with his staff and he's on his way to the courtroom and gets his cancellation notice, you know, and the court's not paying his cost for flying down or anything from Canada, but it's just, the whole thing's ridiculous, and man has done nothing but delay, delay, and delay again, and so now the judge is in on it. Go figure. I don't know if the judge is, is whether his issue was real or whether it was influence or what, but the bottom line is there's a pattern that's been going on for over a decade of delay, delay, delay. And because man does not want to be put up on the stand. That's why. Michael Mann from Penn State. He should be in the state pen. There, I said it. That was the issue that this whole lawsuit is about because he got upset over an old joke that's been said for decades about Penn State versus state pen. And, you know, what a thin skin. I'll say it right. again. Michael Mann should be in the state pen. <laughs> All right. Alan Griffiths sends he should us be at the prison question. Camp. Maybe he should be at the, uh, the prison camp that we saw when we chronicled the good and the bad and the ugly in my experiences throughout the Southwest during the Civil War. Perhaps he deserves a session uh, with uh, Van Cleef as the music plays. I'd like him to be in the Congo... Uh, um, Cobalt mines working alongside the children or replacing <laughs> some children. Yeah, Michael, that would be interesting. That would be fitting. All right. So Alan Griffiths asked in a super chat, sending us five pounds. One of the most common lies is that melting sea, sea ice causes sea level rise. The people who make these claims are either ignorant or dishonest. Yeah, you can prove that to yourself with just put some ice in a glass, you know, watch it melt. I like, my whiskey, I like my whiskey neat, but if I put an ice cube in my whiskey glass here as it melts, and it would melt very slowly in the Chicago weather, nevertheless, the level in my glass would not change at all. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's, there's maybe a little bit of the ice is sticking up above, and there might be a minuscule amount of increase, but it's not the catastrophic stuff that these people claim. If you have land-based ice, for example, let's say... You know, the glaciers and, um, oh, I don't know, the Alps or something. And then, you know, the water melts or the ice melts. It becomes water, runs down into the streams and into the ocean. Yeah, that would have contributed to the sea level rise. But the bottom line is that that stuff 
refreezes every winter. Melts in the summer, it freezes in the winter. It's a cycle. You know, it's just not catastrophic. All right, next question. Sam Hot says, is it possible to compensate the global average rise they always report to removing the UHI effect? Yes, I've done it. When I went out and studied all the weather stations in the United States, looking for the ones that were not compromised by UHI or local encroachment of surfaces and buildings and air conditioners and so forth, if you look at those stations and look at their data, it's about half of the warming rate of the rest of the stations in the United States. So it's very easy to separate. Just use the good data. Don't use the, the data that's been compromised. That's all they have to do at NOAA. And yet they have this crazy idea that we're going to mix all the good data and the bad data together and come up with some super fantastic algorithm that statistically corrects for all this stuff. Bottom line is, nope, it does not correct for it. And we end up with a temperature record that's flawed. Well, but we don't we don't have those records. Uh, we don't have a similar system globally. Uh, 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 what I call a shadow system of good data. So we'd still have the biased, compromised data from other places, especially since, as I've chronicled on Climate Real uh, Weekly in the past, they're going back to unbiased stations uh, in the jungles of of of, uh, of Colombia, and uh, stations that have been around around a long time that are, that remain in the country, and they're altering. That's rainforest to you, young man. Yeah, yeah. They're they're adjusting their data to reflect what's going on in the cities. So it's harder and harder to find unbiased data that would uh, give you a good reading. Exactly. That's the biggest problem out there, finding unbiased data. And, and that's why NOAA put together the U.S. Climate Reference Network, and it started reporting data since 2005 because they wanted to get away from the biased data. They don't come out and admit that. They don't talk about it in their monthly reports. In the monthly report, they don't talk about the uh, Climate Reference Network. No, they're still using that big, hot mess of mixed-up data with statistically adjusted reality in it. And, you know, because... So I encourage science. people who are watching here today to find and read Anthony Watts's surface station reports. There was one back in, I believe it was 2010, give or take a year or so. And then one that we updated last year at the Heartland Institute. And it shows what the temperatures actually are versus what the government reports in the nefarious may, the nefarious way in a Tuco-like manner in which they doctor the data to hide the truth from the American people. Exactly I'm gonna, right, James. I'm going to make a pitch to our audience as well. So anyone who's read Anthony's reports knows that he details um, local weather stations, local temperature gauges, and he does it with photographs. He does it with photographs. He takes it from different angles, shows you the location, marks it down. Go out, find out where your local temperature gauge is, take some photos and send it our way. Maybe we'll be able yeah. to use those. <laughs> yeah, and I do it with infrared photography as well. Like you can see here, this one, if you scroll down just a little bit, Andy, that dual graphic, that dual image there, this one is, is fantastic. This is a fire station in Colfax, California. Now, 10 years ago, the sensor, which was in that little circle there, was over grass all by itself. But they rebuilt the fire station, and they put up this huge retaining wall, right, made out of rock. Here I am at about one o'clock in the afternoon taking a picture of it in the sun and also taking a picture of it in the infrared. And guess what? The infrared shows that rock is absorbing sunlight like gangbusters. And at night, what happens? The rock releases that energy as heat into the air and it warms the temperature near the sensor for the overnight low to be not as low as it used to be before they put this retaining wall in. So as Another a result, example. the average temperature goes up. Another example, as Anthony documents in his report, if you put your your official temperature station above a barbecue grill, you're probably going to get some warming. Or, or if you, with with miles around nothing, you set a temperature station, and where do you set it? Next to a hot spring, next to a wall, next to a public hot springs in the parking lot, you're going to get some warming. Yes. In fact, I visited a station in Idaho um called uh, it was volcanic hot springs 
I kid you not, this is a hole in the ground where hot water is coming out of the earth, you know, from the volcanic activity. And they've got a temperature sensor there. I mean, of all the places for Noah to put a temperature center in a hole in a volcanic hot springs, that takes the cake. It's not accidental either. I, I mean, a third grader would know that's not a good place to put a temperature station. But yet, these are the stations that NOAA and their government funding agencies, they choose them deliberately to get this warming pattern to incite fear and to keep money flowing to the climate establishment. Right, there it is. Lava Hot Springs, Idaho. It's a resort. People can go there and get in the baths and go on, you know, the water slide and all that stuff. And then on the lower left, you can see the MMTS, the uh, Max Min Temperature Sensor, um, right there next to the electrical panel, down in the hole. I can tell you that my, my Mexican standoff with Tuco and with, <laughs> uh, with Van Cleef there. Angel Eyes. Angel, Angel Eyes. I'm sorry, I, I dispensed of him and I erased him from my memory. But regardless, that would have been unnecessary if we could just tap into the federal tit and uh, get our climate funding instead. Would have saved me a lot of aggravation, although the glory of the event was quite rewarding. Right. All right, let's bring up our next question and see what we've got. Um, Andy, do we have another question for people? Ah, here we go. Ezoro, not of the same genre, but of the same Western, um, same Western thought. Anyway, how many? We have ten years left before a climate catastrophe. Have we undergone already? The climate models are wrong again. Yes, they always push it out about ten years. If we don't act now, doom is happening ten years from now, or five years from now, or whatever it might be. And it's just, it's a pattern with the media. Uh, and with the climate zealots out there, they just say doom is just around the corner if we don't do something now. And, you know, doom comes and goes without actually having any doom. It's we a live pattern. in a doomless society when it comes to climate. It's a pattern they share with two. two. Yeah. As we wait for Sterling, your President Biden talks about climate change being the greatest threat the world and America in particular has ever faced. No, the greatest threat when I dispensed of Tuco and Angel Eyes was war. And in this case, the war, the oppression coming from hostile nations like China and Russia. If we're going to spend all our time trying to direct our resources to climate change, we're leaving ourselves quite vulnerable. And there's only so much that Blondie can do to fend off Russia and China. Yeah, President Biden, when he introduced the National Climate Assessment, had some interesting remarks. Let's roll it and see what he had to say. Investors in America caused $178 billion, $178 billion in damages. They hit everyone, no matter where, what their circumstances, but they hit the most vulnerable the hardest, seniors, people with disabilities, people experiencing homelessness who have nowhere to turn. Black, brown, and tribal communities, territories that are most exposed and lead, have the least resources, fewest resources. But folks, none of this is inevitable. None of it's inevitable. From day one, my administration has taken unprecedented climate action. We're working yeah. with everyone from mayors to county officials to entrepreneurs to academics, business leaders, labor leaders, tribal leaders. We're focused in all parts of America, cities, suburbs, small towns, and rural communities and tribal nations. And here's how. We're using a law that I got passed when I first came to office called the American. All right. You know, one of the most interesting statements there is he says, climate change is affecting the homeless the most. I would say that cold probably affects the homeless the most rather than warmth. What would you think, James? I think that people clamoring to gas the Jews is a greater threat to human health and welfare than climate change. I think that nations like Russia and China that look to take advantage of our weakness and impose their totalitarian systems on the United States are a greater threat than climate change. I think that when you go to President Xi or dictator Xi, whatever label you want to put on him, the fact of the matter is he's a dictator, it's a totalitarian government, 
if you say we're going to sacrifice and we'll compromise on this and that of our own national security so that you might you might build fewer coal power plants, which they're going to build anyway. That's our problem. And by the way, build as many coal power plants as you want, China, because that's going to help your people. I would, and I would say that if he's really worried about the homeless problem, if he's worried about the health of the homeless, spend a fraction, a tenth, 25% of the money they're spending on climate change actually on the homeless, go into San Francisco and house these people, go into Dallas and house these people, feed them, help them get on their feet and get jobs. That would do more for them than fighting climate change. Well, he seems yeah. very focused on homelessness now that she is visiting San Francisco. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, Kenneth points out, Joe and company caused the inflation, the debt, the wars, the insurrection, and they attribute it to climate change. Like I've always said, climate change is the universal boogeyman these days. It's the cause of everything. All right, that's all we have time for today on this number 88 episode of Climate Change Roundtable, the good, the bad, and the ugly. James, I want to thank you for joining us, especially for being in character. And Sterling, thank you for joining us too with your expert commentary. So with that, I want to say I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate at the Heartland Institute, wishing you all a great Friday and a fantastic weekend. Bye-bye. He's a lion dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs>